All right, before we get started today, here's a few words from Nancy Condi, a longtime scholar of Russian film. And I should say, in the interest of full disclosure, she's the director of Reese at the University of Pittsburgh, is where I work. Eurasian Knot is uh, a community of people that share adjacent research interests or are just plain curious about a topic that they know nothing about. Um, Eurasian Knot manages to span this entire spectrum. And if you scan the topics, you'll find invariably you'll find something interesting you never thought about before. And suddenly there's an interesting person who can tell a good story in a language that's accessible to all of us. None of what Eurasian Knot does would be possible without listener support. Whether you listen to the podcast for education or for entertainment, consider taking a moment to become a monthly patron by going to patreon.com slash Euronaut. That's E-U-R-A-K-N-O-T, Euronaut. Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. As you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Russian East European and Eurasian Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. And as Nancy Condi said in her pitch at the top of the show, you know, put your money where your interests are, if you like this podcast, if you listen to it for entertainment, if you listen to it for education, we could use your support going forward. So take a couple of minutes, seriously consider becoming a patron of the Eurasian Knot at patreon.com slash Euronaut, or go to Euronaut.org and sign up to become a monthly patron. I also want to say that we now have a merch store called The Knot's Nest. I will put a link to that in the show notes of this podcast. So this is the third episode in our series on religion. It's called Religion in Post-Socialist Societies. And this was organized in the spring as part of Reese's interview series at the University of Pittsburgh and in conjunction with Susanna Bogomil, who is at the Institute of Archaeology and Ethnology at the Polish Academy of Sciences. So I'm here with Susanna to introduce this interview. It's with Genevieve Zubritsky and Jose Casanova on the role of the Catholic Church in Poland. This, of course, is an important topic, Susanna, because it touches right on your home, Poland, and the role of the Catholic Church in Polish politics. So why don't you tell us about some of the themes listeners are going to hear about in this interview? So this episode is very, very important uh, because it gives us the understanding of political ambivalences of religion. So if you listen to our first two uh, episodes, uh, there is the perspective from below. We invited anthropologists, uh, Anka, Katie and Tatiana give us, you know, how this religion, you know, was understood and lived on a very uh, micro level. And here we have very prominent scholars who discussed it from below, from these macro processes. And I think it is very important because if you listen to this um, uh, podcast, you will see what was the role of the Catholic religion in the Polish history uh, and in the history of the combat of communism. But you can also see how religion, in the on the one hand, permits to construct civic society, on the other hand, works against this civic society. And to be honest, in my opinion, this, this, uh, this uh, podcast is very good if you would like to understand the role of Poland in nowadays war in Ukraine and to understand why Poles are so engaged and the, the government is engaged. This episode, in my opinion, gives a lot of uh, answers on this uh, uh, on these mm -hmm. questions. Well, thank you very much, Susanna. We have two guests today, Genevieve Zubritsky and Jose Casanova. Genevieve Zubritsky is a professor of sociology at the University of Michigan, where she directs the Wisner Center for Europe and Eurasia and the Copernicus Center for Polish Studies. She's the author of the award-winning The Crosses of Auschwitz, Nationalism and Religion in Post-Communist Poland, and Beheading the Saint, Nationalism, Religion, and Secularism in Quebec. Her most recent book is Resurrecting the Jew, Nationalism, Philosemitism, and Poland's Jewish Revival. 
Jose Casanova is an emeritus professor of sociology, theology, and religious studies, and a senior fellow of the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs at Georgetown University. He's the author of numerous works on religion, secularization, and globalization, among them the modern classic Public Religions in the Modern World, which has been translated into numerous Western and non-Western languages. Here's Genevieve Zubritsky and Jose Casanova. So you both uh, study and write about the role of religion in society. And I always like to ask this question of all my guests. Um, Genevieve, let's start with you. How did you get interested in the place of religion in the modern world? Well, it starts in, when you ask those questions to scholars, they most of the time they go back to their own biographies. I suspect it's the same for Jose. Uh, so for me, I grew up in Quebec in the 1970s in a place that was utterly secular and that was undergoing an important uh, nationalist movement. Uh, and so I grew up with this uh, effervescence of political mobilization, but very secular. And I went to Poland for the first time in 1989 as a third generation uh, Pole. And it's hard even to say Pole because... Uh, I'm third generation on the one side, on my father's side, but not on my mother's side. Uh, and I arrived basically on June 2nd, 1989, so two days before the fateful elections of June 4th. And on June 4th, my great aunt took me to Father Jerzy Popiewuszko's uh, church and gravesite, and it was the the day of the first semi-democratic elections in Eastern Europe. So it was the beginning, not the beginning of the end, but really beginning of this kind of domino effect that we call the end of communism in Eastern Europe. And so that summer, I witnessed very important political transformations and this kind of collective effervescence around Solidarity's victory in that election. But that was very, very different from the one I knew from Quebec, because you would see priests and nuns everywhere churches that were packed, so a very different aesthetics. So then I became interested back then in whether Catholicism would collapse as it had in Quebec in the 1960s with the collapse of communism. So that became one of my key research, even for my master's thesis. So mine was, I encountered religion and politics for the first time in the Polish context, but with a Quebec gaze, I would say. And for you, Jose, uh, how did you get interested in, in religion and society? Well, I, I grew up in Francos, Spain, a regime that can be called National Catholicism. You know, you can call National Socialism, National Zionism, National Communism, but basically it's all uh, 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 different versions of the same, where the nation state is sacralized. And the, in this particular case, the Catholic Church helped the sacralization of the Franco regime. In addition to that, I grew up in a village that was traditionally uh, producing a lot of priests. So a lot of uh, basically peasants in the village that had been there. But then I had to have the chance to study theology in Innsbruck, Innsbruck, uh, German university, uh, in German, they call it Theologische Wissenschaft, uh, scientific theology, right? So the, the science of theology. And this was the 60s. This was, of course, turmoil. So that the, the age of secularization, uh, God is dead, the secular city, and yet a fascinating effervescence of uh, Catholic thought, everything is thinkable. And then I came to the U.S., and the U.S., of course, was a shock for me, how religious it was, with the a secular Europe, uh, uh, a Spain that had abandoned also its Catholicism, had become radically secularized, and still a religious America. So this is basically what led me. And then everybody was suddenly talking about the return of the sacred religious revivals, but I thought there was a lot of nonsense. People that know very, knew very little about religion and were talking about it. I was not that interested at first, but then somehow I decided, well, if we go to church, because of church position. 
We'll step back a bit uh, and return to Catholicism in the late uh, state socialist period. Um, you know, Jose, your book, Public Religion, you wrote about the power of Polishism and the construction and this relationship with modern Polish civic civil society. How do you understand this relationship between uh, religion or the Catholic Church and Polish civil society? Again, for me, what was fascinating coming to terms with or coming to know different from Spanish Catholic, right? The, the, the notion of of uh, workers kneeling uh, while striking in a factory and taking communion was totally unthinkable. It was like a surreal for a Spanish conception, with nothing of a working class being Catholic in Spain. So this was fascinating. And uh, of course, what is important, I mean, the title of your series is All Religion. But I realized this is not religion. This is a religion that has been transformed by, mobiliz by mother mobilization. A mother mobilization that began already in the, you know, in the partition, uh, but then it was the intelligentsia and the, and the bourgeoisie, uh, not yet uh, the peasantry so much. And even, you know, you could say that the peasants, after independence, uh, there was really still anti-clerical. So, but then came then the occupation, the Nazis, and then the Soviet period. So again, it was really, this is the production of mother mobilization, of Catholicism, that more successful than the attempts of the regime to mobilize the population for, for their own state identity. So it's very important not to think that this traditional religion that somehow has survived, but it's a religion that has been transformed and in the process it appears for freedom. So you could simply argue when religion is somehow aligned with freedom and democracy and liberalism, then it survives. When it is uh, basically phenomenologically perceived as being against the individual, against, against modernity, against freedom, then it, it suffers. And so here you have an American religion is there not because it's an old religion, but because it has become a modern religion attuned to individualism, democracy, etc. And this was for a time what made precisely Polish Catholicism so vibrant. It was the defense of freedom, the defense of democracy, which is what's happening in Ukraine today. Religion today in Ukraine is precisely that for the defense of freedom, individualism, democracy. But if I may, you know, piggyback on this, this is precisely the argument that Jose just articulated is precisely why the Polish case is so interesting, because you would think that after the fall of communism, after the end of totalitarianism, the church that was no longer fighting for democracy and fighting for freedom, but for fighting for restricting certain rights and enshrining, for example, Christian values in the constitution, et cetera, et cetera, restricting abortion rights, you know, uh, that, that it would really lead to a decline of religion. And what has happened is that it, it increased the critique of the church but has not impacted so much participation in religious services or baptism, for example. So it's changing just recently on marriages, right? So people cohabit. Um, they still tend to marry once they have children. They still tend to baptize. Yes, there's a movement for apostasy, so for people to leave the church. But what is surprising is that in 30 years following the fall of communism, Catholicism has not collapsed in Poland. So how would, you, how would you understand then the role of Catholicism within Polish national identity then? It sounds, from what you just said, reasons it hasn't declined is that it's really, you know, bound together with a Polish sense of national self. Well, so one, one argument I'm making in some of my publications is that what I call the national sensorium. So a way of thinking, feeling, representing the nation uh, is also very much uh, in tune with religious iconography and rituals. And that, when that happens, I think it becomes more difficult to evacuate religion because it's also part of your family life and it's part of all sorts of other tradition. But what you see in Poland is really two different visions of the polity of the Polish state. One that wants to secularize it and have the church to be just one among other religious or non-religious options. 
and those who fight for having the church and religion to continue being the defining characteristic of Polish national identity. And what has structured the public field and the political sphere in Poland since 1990, let's say, once a political debate started on this issue, is that division. It has really structured the political field, this opposition. Um, and yet people still go to church. I mean, 70% of Poles continue to go to church at least once a month. That's a lot of, that's a lot of people. And yes, you see a decline in cities, you see a decline in young people, and that decline is significant. That decline is very significant, but this hasn't happened. So how about you, Jose? What do you, how do you understand it then in this relationship between, uh, you know, kind of national identity? Well, I think that the crucial is, is beyond that. I think that the crucial element, when I wrote public religion, and of course, the first chapter I wrote of public religion was a comparative study of the organization in Brazil, Poland, and Spain. It was really the core of what later will become the book. And uh, it's interesting that in all these cases, the church uh, became the kind of the defender of civil society. Uh, in at the time when civil society included all kinds of social movements on the left, even the beginnings of feminism. But the issue of gender had not yet become a debated moral question. So in all these transitions, the church could play this crucial role because the issue of gender was not yet a contested issue. So it was the issue of gender that once it became, and of course it, it, it started in the States, it, it became more within the evangelical fundamentalism, the Catholic church took over these arguments uh, in Latin America. Um, we use a, a, a shortening of what will be the base of Catholicism. And then it becomes a more traditional for Catholicism. The groups, uh, working class, intellectuals, uh, basically feminists, young people, uh, let's say in the case of Spain, the peripheric nationalisms and so on, uh, civil society in a broader sense. So this is lost. And of course, you have today that the right wing Catholic movements as in Spain, Fox, which basically brings together the issue anti-feminism, basically anti-feminism, anti-immigrant, and basically anti-Europe, uh, anti-secularism, liberalism, etc. But it is the issue of gender that has become crucial to politics. So to understand the dynamics is, and of course, when the issue of gender has emerged, let's say, in Ireland, was very critical, obviously, the role of the church in the in the uh, uh, sexual, uh, not only priests, but also of uh, uh, orphanages and young people, etc. So I, I have to ask then, I mean, both of you have pointed to this reality that Catholicism has not declined significantly in Poland. So why? Why has it not declined then, as, as it seems people might have expected? Well, I mean, we might see something that's... that's uh, uh less drastic than in other other moments. So what Jose finished saying, well, we could have seen this in 1993 when the new law on abortion was created. Okay, but in 1993, the women who were uh, of age then and were older were women who had been really raised under socialism. So perhaps then it was not enough to create mobilization against that. Um, so now what you see, there's large mobilization against uh, new projects of law that the law and justice has proposed, right? So, and you see also the approval of the church uh, following that movement, that proposal to criminalize abortion and basically uh, prevent it in almost every case um, has impacted the church in the same way that it had in 1993. So approval went down to under 50%. So we might see within the next five or 10 years, people leaving the church as a result of law and justice, you know? And because you see an alliance between a far-right populist party and government and the Catholic church. And this is when actually, you know, uh, you have critique of, Church institutions, like in Spain, for example, 
in the church, right? So, uh, which was not the case under communism. Under communism, it was the church versus the party state. Now it's the state with the church, and there is pushback against that and people exiting or leaving Catholicism as a result. But it's not a very rapid and drastic or dramatic transformation. Um, but it might just be and continue to be a greater polarization centered around, you know, southeastern Poland, for example, which tends to be more rural, uh, more traditional and more Catholic and voting for law and justice and central and northern Poland that tends to be more liberal, et cetera, et cetera. So. Of course, the way we pose the question presupposes that the normal process will be secularization, and therefore you have to explain why it has not happened. I think it's better to say, to explain it precisely. It's always linked to political process. It's not something that happens automatically. As I mentioned, if the church is linked to basically perceptions of freedom and democracy, individualism, then it's going to uh, simply go very well with modernization, and secularization is not going to happen so easily. So the question is now, you have new forms of polarization everywhere in all democracies. So once the societies were secularized, that's the most Western societies, this polarization leading to right-wing parties, some religious groups may benefit, but really this is not, this is not relevant. But in those countries like Poland, where precisely you still have a base, a long, strong base of uh, traditional Catholicism, and where you have this polarization, then obviously it's going to be exploited by the parties to use it. So he's themselves, the same thing in the United States, right? Uh, the the, the, the right-wing evangelicals were there, but it's the party that basically maintains it, and then it, it has a feed of itself, of course. But we see that how the nuns in the U.S., young people really don't get it. Don't get it because they say, what are these people talking about, about same-sex marriage? What's the problem, right? So they don't get it, and obviously it's only a generation question when this thing is going to, to basically fall. But then other things may emerge. So the, it's very important not to assume that there is a kind of a normal process that will happen unless something happens. No. Every process has its explanations, and here is the process which are you know, I, I have to, as a kind of outside observer to, you know, religion in our modern world, um, it does seem to me, though, and I'd like to hear what both of you think of this, that we're in a period of a kind of religious resurgence, partially because of what you both said about, the, you know, right, certain political parties and certain political issues have kind of polarized and some have gravitated to religion. But at the same time, it seems to be a kind of, I, I tend to think of this this more religion in societies and in politics itself too, a reaction to maybe, you know, globalization or to a feeling of dislocation um, and trying to find a community or to stay oneself in the community. Um, what do you what do you think of this kind of, are we in a moment globally where we're seeing an upsurge? Uh, obviously, I mean, I've been working on these because I work more beyond Europe and the U.S., uh, throughout Asia, and yes, yes, but this is uh, not necessarily because of, sex. again, it's a, it's a very complex process. Obviously, uh, religion itself has become, religion and the secularists have become contested issues everywhere and have become part of the polarization. It takes different uh, uh, in India, uh, in, in Muslim countries, in Latin America, but yes, uh, it is part of the ongoing process. It's not necessarily globalization in the sense that it produces discontent, but globalization produces the need to basically develop some kind of identity vis-a-vis -vis other globe. And one of them is obviously uh, religious identities against other religious identities or religious identities against secular identities. So this is part of concretely how it, it uh, expresses itself in different contexts. It's very, very different. But if, I mean, I, I, for instance, I've written on comparing precisely East Germany, uh, Poland, Ukraine, and Russia, post-Soviet, and how different these four dynamics have been, right? Uh, uh, precisely, East Germany was the most uh, secularized society and remains the most secular. There has been no religious revival whatsoever, nothing. So the notion that somehow post-communism brings some religious revival, not in East Germany. Poland, again, fascinating. Modernization. Basically, nobody really, people do not anymore follow uh, on public issues 
Catholic Church, and yet still a lot of people still maintain, they identify themselves as Catholics, they still go to church, so the so-called indicator of secularization is still very weak. Ukraine has become the most pluralistic religious society in all of Europe. It's the country that I argue follows the denominational model and all religions grow together. In Russia, you have the, the development of a confessional confessional orthodoxy is the definition of Russian nationality. Not that people go to church, but to be Russian means to be orthodox. Now it's identification. So again, these are four different models, post-Soviet societies. So it's not so much, uh, uh, yes, in general, somehow religion is part of the polarization. I agree. And I think that um, in, in places where there is a growth of religion, I mean, it's, it can be also seen as a re- reaction to modernity and to the emancipation of women, for example. So religious fundamentalism, that was the argument of Martin Rizzobrod, for example, in his work on Iran and the U.S., right? So what do they have in common, those cases, is that it's a reaction against transformations and wanting to go back to this kind of nostalgic invented past era. or um, And there is some of that in Poland, too. So, you know, the the, the fear of women entering the workforce and being currently uh, in Poland, a lot of the discourse is against what they call gender, so gender ideology. And uh, feminists are called feminist terrorists, and they are responsible for all social evils in the country, including for pedophile priests, right? I mean, this is what even one bishop said, uh, declared in public. So um, I think that there's some scholars, feminist scholars have um, even made the point that feminism and gays have become new Jews, right? Right. So that they serve structurally, basically, as a vision of modernity that traditionalists are afraid of and reject, and they vilify that population to mobilize people. But precisely on this issue, of course, the moral is international. We know that the global culture wars around this issue, and this led to coalitions of American evangelicals and the Russian Orthodox Church. And of course, the Catholic Church was ready, not being for this pope, who today, the a triple coalition of Russian evangelicals and Catholics, which most of the radical, most conservative groups are uh, pro-Russian on this issue. And yet, precisely Ukraine, which is as conservative as Russia or on this issue, yet cannot go for it, cannot link it to anti-European uh, argument. And now uh, Poland, on the one hand, uh, also because of the war in Ukraine, cannot the coalition with Russia on this gender issue. So again, even this issue is refracted so differently in terms of the different kind of coalitions that you find today. So the kind of populist movements that even three years ago, it seems long to become a pro-Russian movement uh, precisely on many of those issues. Uh, uh, well, this is in crisis. So it is always open and we need to, to prize. How to roll or impact? Oh, I'll start this way. You know, uh, stepping back a couple of decades, you know, Pope John Paul II becoming pontiff and his visit to Poland in 1979 is commonly seen as a real pivotal moment in the opposition to communism in Poland. Was it that significant? I think it was a pivotal moment, primarily because it shows to the, to the Polish people uh, their numbers, basically. Uh, it's really coalesce in a position. Something like 10 million people, so a quarter of the population, followed him on his trajectory on different places, huge masses, outdoor masses, etc. The visit was organized without any help from the state, uh, without any uh, bad event, etc. And so it showed people, oh, look, there's many of us and we can really do this together. When you read testimonies from people who assisted, for example, to the large mass in the the Buonia in the center of of Krakow, I mean, they say, I saw society that day. They describe what Durkheim is describing in his works of this collective effervescence where the social becomes embodied. 
And so I think it had a very important psychological effect in making people realize that it can happen, that change could be instantiated. Of course, the church had been political before. It had Cardinal Wyszynski, who was important authority. Um, so I, I think that the transformation is more on the kind of psychosocial level. But it was also the experience. I mean, CORE had already formalized this model of the self-organization of civil society without the state. But now this became a reality. People experienced they could organize the whole thing without the state. The state was not necessary. Of course, it was a mirage. But the notion of solidarity, the solidarity didn't want to take power, didn't want to take the state, but simply to organize itself, the society self-organization without the state, right? And this was the, the experience that led to it. And given this heroic role of the church in, in opposing the communist and, you know, of course, John Paul II's, you know, kind of as a national hero in this process, uh, you've already both kind of hinted and mentioned the sexual abuse scandals coming out of the Catholic Church. And even the, there's been revelations of Polish priests and John Paul II's covering up of, of some of these crimes. How has the impact been in Poland of these revelations? Well, that's interesting because actually so far, there hasn't been much of an impact. And, you know, 15, 20 years ago, there were other revelations around other bishops, for example, and uh, nothing nothing was happening following that, very little. Uh, so nothing compared to Ireland or Canada or, uh, and even most recently, so in the last two, three weeks, there have been revelations that John Paul II knew about certain sex scandals in Poland and did not say anything. And you don't see massive protests. You don't see people really getting angry. You have people writing in the press about this. You have women who have protested and pouring blood on the, on the statue, for example, that type of things. But so far, it hasn't led to massive protests or massive exit from the church. Um, it hasn't been, you know, here in the U.S., you saw people organizing testimonies of people, lawsuits being, there's nothing of, to that extent in Poland. There's one film that was made, uh, maybe that's like, was before COVID, so five, seven years ago called Claire. So the, the clergy that was documenting this, uh, that it's a, it's a fiction film showing abuse within the church. And within the film, you would have interludes where you had real victims of sexual abuse by priests testimony, you know, testify, sharing that. Um, so a lot of protests against that film, a lot of people going to that film, but you haven't seen a major impact on that. And there hasn't been like full investigations, like for example, public investigations where there would be a document or report published and with penalties or, or whatnot. And what is the, Jose, do you have a sense of what, what say practitioners of Catholicism, how they make sense of this, these revelations? Do they just ignore them? Context, context. For instance, I'm in Germany right now. In Germany has been devastating for the Catholic Church. It devastated. Because uh, where Germany had been, again, relatively, I mean, you always compare, was where Germany always much more religious than is Germany, and the two churches, I mean, the Protestants had always been more secularized, but the Catholics were holding relatively well. But in the last 20 years, and mostly connected with that, and you can have the evidence because here people don't automatically, they take the money and they pay taxes to the church. But the... the massive uh, numbers of people that say, no, don't give my taxes to the church and that have, have renounced giving taxes to me. And so this has been, uh, and of course, then the, the, the church is having to pay tremendous amount of money also. But in Spain, in Spain, for instance, in Spain, I am surprised. Uh, now there is finally a commission which is organized by still relatively uh, um, harmonious. I mean, there are debates. I mean, but given the anti-clericalism and the radical attempt of really, really bringing it to the church, I'm surprised how, yeah, there have been cases, there have been obvious scandals, but not to the extent that we know. The Catholic Church in Spain controls society even more than in the case of Ireland. 
So it was under the Franco regime, they control everything, the whole entire system of education. So, and yet, and yet, uh, uh, there have been not that many cases, you could say, because the culture of pedophilia and uh, living with women and then, and then, than these other. So there are, but in, not to the extent that we know in the last two years in France, all the revelations. So I'm still waiting when it, it was going to happen in Spain. You have like people sweeping this under the rug saying he did not know, or this is, I mean, that's an easy thing that you see here and elsewhere. You know, this is a conspiracy theory against our Polish Pope, or this is a Soros, whatever. I mean, so you see a lot of that, basically. Uh, in Poland, there's also an interesting theories of the church being controlled by Jews. Like, so that uh, Jewish, yeah, that's something that I've heard uh, very often during my field work with uh, right-wing people, where they would say that uh, Jewish children were hidden by the church during World War II, grew up within the church. Some of them then became priests and are in there to destroy the church from within. Um, and so this is the kind of conspiracy theories. And so, for example, more liberal bishops are often accused to, of being Jewish and not, not Catholic. I mean, again, it's basically political, political parties. When you have political parties that are also against gender ideology and basically repeat decision, not the church. So it is the political parties that do it. And of course, it, it basically uh, the position of the church. So you have, you have uh, right-wing parties now in, in Europe that basically are radically anti-feminist and basically anti-woke, right? And basically, uh, you see the polarization in the United States on these issues, right? So this is happening. And, and where it happens, where the church is strong and you have political parties that are strong, then there is a coalition of, of them against this. Now, on the Jewish issue, of course, the amazing thing here that Ukraine, the, the traditionally the most anti, anti-Jewish society of any, and then having both a Jewish president and when, when, when Zelensky was elected, the prime minister was a Jew. So you have both the prime minister and the president of the country, uh, both being Jewish, and yet no, no, never became an issue in the public sphere, in the political, in the political debates. The fact that we have a Jewish president never became an issue. And of course, after Maidan, you have the four highest that were for different religions. You have uh, the, the, uh, Poroshenko that was uh, Orthodox, but actually Moscow Patriarchy Orthodox. He said he was a Greek Catholic. You have the head of, 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 of parliament being a Jew, Groisman. And then you have the, the basic, the speaker of parliament, who was also the, the, the head of security, national security, being a Baptist minister. So here you have the four highest offices of the land being for different Regions and then and yet never not they were not elected because they were either Orthodox or or Catholics or Jews so it's not a political issue and this is the amazing thing about the transformation let's say of you do not appreciate how uh, internally pluralist as internal religious pluralism uh, the Ukrainian society has become I, mean, I, I just wanted to point this out because I think since since. Ukraine has has a crucial issue also and its relations. And of course, Ukraine-Poland relation obviously is the most, the greatest transformation. Today, it is Russian-Ukrainian confrontation, but 30 years ago was obviously, or 50 years ago was the Ukrainian-Polish confrontation. And this confrontation is over. There's radically transformed relations between the two intellectual intelligences, especially most important transformations in, 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 Eastern Europe, I would say. Um, you know, you've both described the Catholic Church in Poland today as you know being anti, kind of anti-democratic. It's it's uh, mostly aligned with well, at least the right wing party centralized on the church. Um, they are you know limiting rights of women, abortion, gay, lesbian rights, LGBTQ, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, do you see is the church or elements of the church playing? Uh, pushing back against that right-wing capture of the church? Yeah. Yes, there are circles who push back against that. And this is, um, this is a movement within the Catholic Church that's associated with, the, with a personalist movement. Uh, that's the movement also that Jean Paul II was, and Tadeusz Mazowiecki were affiliated with, of Tygodnik Powszechny. However, 
uh, and Father Mushao also was important in that. Um, but there is not much of a replacement for that group. And so some of them have passed away. Others have been set aside. So there's one left the church, for example. So um, now a professor at the University of, of Warsaw, so Stanislav Obirek. And then you have others that have been pushed aside from the church. But So now there's very few figures that can actually gather steam for that movement. Tegonik uh, Pavshakhny, however, that newspaper has become one of the key, is knowing like a, a new kind of a renaissance where there's more intellectual debates by Catholics and by, let's say, secular people. And that's basically as a result also of Gazeta de Borcha becoming more commercial. And so there's people who have left the media of Gazeta de Borcha where a lot of important uh, societal debates were taking place. And now it's taking place in Tegodin Pavshakhne. Uh, and a lot of young people in, for, in the intelligentsia read that newspaper, but it's not necessarily a Catholic publication anymore. So I think that there's a vacuum Actually, there's a leadership vacuum for what's called in Polish, they would call it, you know, open Catholicism. And of course, I, I would add that I would add that we're not anti-democratic. We are we are with the parties that win the democratic election. Right? So, with respect, uh, it's a, the problem is precisely that it's not anti-democratic. They are simply for a unique form of democracy, which is a majoritarian democracy, anti-liberal. So, uh, so it's, it's not anti-democratic, it's anti-liberal. We think of, of liberalism and democracy going together, but in the 19th century, they were totally apart. The democrats were anti-liberal, the liberals were anti-democrats. And we see this separation today again, right? So they are precisely for majoritarian democracy against the protection of, of minorities, against the rule of law, the rule of law, not constitutional. The majoritarians have to control also the legal, juridical processes, they're against the division of powers. And so it's, they're against, against liberalism for majoritarian democracy. And, and, and also, yes, I think that there are still very small groups. The old Catholic intelligentsia is very, very small, now reduced for what it was. VS is the other journal still playing a role, let's say in Krakow. But also the type of coalition that was possible before is not possible now. What about religious minorities in Poland? How how do they navigate the increased politicization of Catholicism? There's, the, I mean, it's okay. So religious minorities, there's so many, right? You could think that there's fewer than five percent of them. Um, what you know, Protestant, uh, a few Tatars, Muslims, uh, Orthodox. Uh, and Jews. So the interesting thing is that it's really the Jewish community that has managed to have a lot of visibility in the public sphere and around which claims of pluralism are being articulated, both by themselves, but also by uh, the liberal left. So that a lot of people are supporting the renewal of Jewish life in Poland, communal, religious, but also secular in a way to articulate what they call secularism, which would be creating a level playing field. So I've been uh, doing work, my last book is on that topic, and it's interesting to see Protestants, for example, also supporting the renewal of Jewish life because it creates a space for themselves where they can exist. Or having like Jewish rituals is a place they claim the only place where they can meet with Catholics and talk about religion or talk about different things. So uh, I think that religious minorities have a hard time, right? Because they're not too visible and they're trying to be but they're aligning themselves also with other minorities and the minorities such as the LGBT community. And so they create some interesting coalitions so that even the Jewish Orthodox community in Warsaw, for example, might be supportive of LGBT movement because it's basically opposing the hegemony of the Catholic Church. I mean, it's important to remember, of course, that Poland once upon a time 
was the most religiously pluralistic society almost in Europe, right? Uh, at World War I, when it became independent, the Catholic majority was just barely 51%. It was almost 10% Jew, 10% Protestant, 10% Orthodox, and 10% Greek Catholic. And of course, this disappears, and all, all these five groups that together were almost 50% remain only 5%. And so it became homogeneous. And this, of course, what is the, the unique aspect. We cannot understand Polish society without this radical transformation after World War I, the demographic, and then came the Holocaust. And then after World War II, the changes of the force, migrations of people, the borders changing to make sure that Poland was ethno-Catholic and Ukraine was ethno, et cetera, et cetera. But we must understand that this is the problem. I always argue, when we talk of, of religion and state, uh, it goes back to the Westphalian mother. But the Westphalian mother for me begins in 1492. 1492, when Catholic kings decide they want to have a Catholic Spain and they have to get rid of Jews and Muslims. And so the expulsion and ethno-religious cleansing. And this is what the Westphalian mother was. The sovereign defines the religion of the subjects and you have homogeneous, even so that Northern Europe becomes homogeneous Protestant, Southern Europe becomes homogeneous Catholic, and in between you have three societies which are bi-confessional. But the Polish Commonwealth was the exception. It was the refuge for all the religious minorities. But then when the national, when the, the state formation came, you have the bloodlands. So the bloodlands of the Timothy Snyder has written about precisely in Belarus, Ukraine, Poland, and Lithuania, are the equivalent of the religious wars of a state formation of the 16th, 17th century. Unfortunately, these movements, these projects are going on beyond Europe, anywhere today where nation building takes place, in India, anywhere else. Or let's Muslims and Jews that were forced out of Spain, when they have the chance to build their own countries, they repeat the same model. So... This, unfortunately, is a model of ethno-religious cleansing that the state formation developed, European countries developed, and that reproduced itself again and again. And it's a, it's a pity that we cannot free ourselves from it. And finally, let's talk about the impact of the war some more, because, Jose, you've mentioned a couple of times already how, how, the, how does the war in Ukraine uh, and the use of religion by both Ukrainians and Putin's regime change the place of religion in, let's say, in the region in general? What impact does the war have? Well, if I may say, in Ukraine itself, it simply reinforces what was there before. Uh, it's true that today there is a big fight. The, the real fight today is between the two Orthodox churches. It was the fact that there was no one Orthodox church, that the religious minorities could play such a role. Because the Greek Catholics are this minority, about 10%, but they are really, really a nationalist symbol in Ukraine and also the Jews and the Muslims. Given the fact that the Orthodox majority was so divided, they could not play the role of the majority versus minorities, and the minorities could assert themselves. And so this old council of churches and religious organizations in Ukraine that has 15 different members, and the presidency states. So today is the Jews, tomorrow is the Greek Catholics, the next day is one Orthodox. And again, it's only because the Orthodox have no majority power that this can happen. So the only thing that is now problem is if the result of the Ukraine, the Orthodox Church allied to Moscow disappears and the new church becomes a kind of hegemonic church. I think it would not happen because the Greek Catholic Church cannot allow the Orthodox Church to become the national church of Ukraine. So in this respect, the minorities are so, so well organized that they would not allow for a national church to establish itself. But of course, under war, those things could happen if the regime thinks that this, unfortunately, most of Orthodox Ukrainians are not confessional, don't want to have this unified church yet. And so hopefully uh, the, the model of religious pluralism that became so obvious in Maidan and that has become obvious throughout the world, in which all the different religious groups help each other. And the chaplains, you have the chaplains of all the religions on the front, uh, basically being chaplains for all religions. Uh, Jews, Muslim, Orthodox, Greek Catholics, Roman Catholics. So these in Protestants, 
But there's an interesting point about uh, the Orthodox Church trying to distinguish itself from the Russian Orthodox. For example, for Christmas, the patriarch gave permission to for Ukrainian Orthodox to celebrate Christmas on December 20, 25th, right? So, and um, they, they needed a special dispensation. And when I'm speaking with my Ukrainian friends here and, and abroad, they were saying, well, this was important. And why? When I'm asking why, why is it important? Well, we're getting closer to the West. So it, that's an interesting, you know, attempt at distinguishing Ukrainian and Russian Orthodox uh, that has an impact on a common religious calendar, right? So that's that's actually quite a big deal when you think about that. And that's an effect of the war and wanting to be separate from. And actually, this is one of reasons why there may remain an Orthodox Church separate from the other, because those old calendars, the more traditionalists, may join this old church that maintains the old calendar, given, I mean, this is fascinating, given how attached uh, the Eastern tradition was to their calendar. And even in the diaspora, there were fights in every city. You have an old Ukrainian old calendar, Ukrainian new calendar, Ukrainian church. There was huge fights. And the fact that now young people, especially all of them, want to have yes, the new calendar. But there is the room for like the old believers. There may be an old calendar Orthodox Church in Ukraine that rejects the new calendar. And this will be a way for maintaining some links to the Moscow Patriarchate. That was Genevieve Zabritsky and Jose Casanova. Genevieve Zabritsky is a professor of sociology at the University of Michigan. She's the author of the award-winning The Crosses of Auschwitz, Nationalism and Religion in Post-Communist Poland, and Beheading the Saint, Nationalism, Religion, and Secularism in Quebec. Her most recent book is Resurrecting the Jew, Nationalism, Philosemitism, and Poland's Jewish Revival. And Jose Casanova is an emeritus professor of sociology, theology, and religious studies at Georgetown University. He's the author of numerous works on religion, secularization, and globalization, among them, the modern classic Public Religions in the Modern World, which has been translated into numerous Western and non-Western languages. I'm Sean Guillory, and this is the Eurasian Knot. As you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. And I won't say too much about how important it is for you to become a patron, I'll just reiterate that it's incredibly important for your support to help us keep this podcast going. So please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash you're not. And if you don't have the means to chip in a couple of dollars a month, which honestly, it's a few dollars a month, but I understand people have obligations. So the least you can do is help us promote the show on social media, tell your friends and family about it and have them tune in. That's a big help as well. So until next time, bye.